Oh boy, another crazy Sunday, uh, another crazy major. It feels like they're all this way now, which is fun, but John Rahm has won the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, his first career major championship. It didn't look like he was going to win this major, probably until he made his final two putts of the day, uh, which I think tells you everything about how crazy a Sunday it was when the guy who wins really wasn't the clear winner until the final putt drops. Uh, did it feel like a roller coaster out there for you? Yeah, it was It was head spinning. I was out on the course um, really all day and trying to figure out where to spend my time. Um, I was following Rory for a while. It seemed like he was making a charge. Then Bryson was right in front of him, so that seemed like a pretty smart place to be. And then all of a sudden that felt pretty stupid, especially when the cheers came up from across the course. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was absolutely head spinning. It was hard to figure out uh, who was going to win really at any point until the very end. Um, and we ended up with, ironically, the guy that was projected to win at the start of the week or was, you know, given the, the, the highest odds at the start of the week. So... I don't know, man. We keep getting dramatic majors and we keep getting what feels like deserving champions. You know, we keep waiting for the time that there's going to be a random golfer winning one of these majors and it just hasn't happened in a while. John Rahm might be the best golfer in the world and he certainly played like it this week. Yeah, I think we can just say that he is the best golfer in the world. He has been. I guess right now, yeah, he sure sure stamped it today. This isn't just a current anointing though i mean the guy won the memorial uh until he had to withdraw he has won a bunch across the world in the last two years he has finished in the top three across the world a bunch in the last two years he just had not won a major and maybe you can't be the best player in the world until you win a major but you can play the best golf when you when you add everything up you can be the best golfer and not obviously triumph every single place. That's how golf goes. Data Golf has ranked him number one uh, for much of 2021. Dustin Johnson hasn't played that kind of golf this year. No one has played that kind of golf this year. So, yeah, he's number. He's the best player in the world. He does everything in, that golf asks better than anybody else. What's John Rahm like? Um you just spent some time with him and you spent some time talking to, you know, a lot of people around him for, for a cover story. We've been on shoots with him. Um, is there, is there anything that people might not know about John Rahm that you feel like you've gleaned from being in his orbit? I think that his orbit is just kind of tiny. I think that is, uh, is something that is more Brooks Kepka like than, uh, maybe, Bryson like you know Bryson keeps a big a big cast of characters kind of around him at all times John Rahm's crew is is pretty tiny and and they've kind of all been there for a long time now like we talk about his relationship with Phil Mickelson that's like coming up on most of a decade-long relationship at this point and we we talk about his coach one of his coaches is is Dave Phillips who started coaching him when he was in Spain, before he even came to the United States. And Tim Mickelson uh, was Rom's 
college coach and then his agent and has kind of passed the torch to Phil Mickelson's agent to be Rom's guy. And so like everyone that's in his crew has been there for a long time. His caddy, Adam Hayes, has been there for a long time. Uh, he, he keeps the numbers down and it's like, why would he have any reason to change things up? I think that might be the most important thing for people to understand about Rom is that this was the next step. This was the most obvious next step. Everyone in the crew knew that this was coming. It was going to arrive eventually. You knock on the door enough times and a player of his talent eventually goes through the door. And none of us should be surprised at it. And you know what? We should not be surprised if he wins the British Open next month. Yeah. What's crazy though is, yes, I, I completely agree. We shouldn't be surprised. But at the same, and and it makes perfect sense, but at the same time, he needed two miraculous putts in the last two holes to both go in to uh, to win this. He needed Louis to hit his tee shot into the ravine on number seventeen. Um, it's always sort of a, a confluence of things for a player to actually, you know, beat one of the best fields in the in the entire world to win a major. Um, but those two putts were crazy. I mean, they were they were unbelievable. We were thinking about. You know, out on the course, like I wonder if there's a chance that four under um, could end up being the the lead or go to a playoff, or maybe Rom falters and like could Harris English at three under in the clubhouse somehow still have a chance. Instead, getting to six under was not really even in the picture. So um, it's funny. It feels like such an obvious victory now, looking back at it, but it it just did not at all feel that way. You know, in the moment out there, which is interesting. I had a hard time understanding which putt was more difficult. I think this, the first one was, I think the 17th hole, I think that had a little more break to it. And it was a putt that a lot of people missed today, playing from the center of that 17th green. I think the 18th hole putt, it sounds like John Rahm took a cue from old highlights uh, from 2008 when Lee Westwood missed that putt. Uh, they were both were miraculous. You're right, both of them could have missed. Either of them could have missed. Somehow he made them both go in, and that's exactly the difference between him finishing solo second and him finishing solo first, uh, and obviously avoiding a playoff with Louis. Uh, it it feels it feels like John Rom. You know, Aaron Oberhoser, uh, a guy who works on a lot of PJ Tour live broadcasts, one of the smarter guys in golf. He tweeted out, "This is one of." of four for John Rahm. Not that he'll win four career majors, but that he is of the ilk in player who he would expect to flirt with the career grand slam at some point. This isn't just, hey, John Rahm, it's good he got a major, you know, in the way it was for Sergio. He got his major. That's what people, when they say that you got your major, yeah, that's when they think you're only going to get one. There might not be another one coming. Singular. Yeah, I, I think the odds on John Rahm winning another major are are probably like I don't know in his career probably like minus minus six seven eight hundred I mean the guy is is extremely extremely talented and you know what's interesting when we kind of talk about his career progression that was kind of what the the cover story was in the June issue of golf magazine is kind of just like okay what is it what has he all done in the last six years? since he was the number one amateur in the world. And he's gone through 
all the career tour progressions and the steps and the barriers that might get in your way. He's made the major equipment change. He went to Callaway this year from TaylorMade. He's gone through the major life moments of getting married, having your first child. None of these things have have actually halted him from having success. His talent has pushed through various barriers that can get in your way. And it's not to say that you shouldn't get married or have a child, but these things pop up for tour pros. They happen to everyone. They happen to Rory. They happen to Spieth. They happen to Ricky. They happen to literally every player uh, not named Tiger Woods. So that is to say that it's so damn hard to think that John Rahm will drop out of the top 20. <laughs> like he is so, 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 so good. He's his probably his talent level is that of Rory McIlroy's when Rory was super young and talented. I think that's fair. I don't know if you agree, but that implies that he will have a very long career and he will probably be a top 20 golfer throughout almost all of it. Yeah. He's such a steady ball striker. I think that the the difference between Rom and someone like Rory is Rom's success feels less spectacular because I think his game is less spectacular. He hits it far, but not farther than everyone. Um, he plays that little fade basically every single time. He he likes to be able to work the ball both ways, but he generally doesn't. He generally just hits it pretty straight. Um, so I think his game doesn't necessarily stand out to people, which makes him you know harder to talk about or harder to put in a category. Um, but but, I, but he's think, upper echelon everything exactly like when That's, he's yes like, distance like power distance and also he steps up his game when he's around the lead like this guy I guess he hasn't really been a consistent winner on the PGA Tour but he likes to sniff around the lead that's for sure he's like he's just shown that his you know his game his baseline is extremely high and, and that's the I think that's basically what you're saying is is this is his fifth straight year of winning on tour that's crazy he, he instead of likening him to rory i think it might be at this point a little more fair to liken him to dj mm-hmm. um because the the long game and everything else can just click and he can win by six and and dj has shown an ability to do that and like frankly rory hasn't done that a ton or as much as DJ in in the most recent four or five years. So, uh, he plays a fade like DJ Mm -hmm. hits the ball, maybe not as far as DJ, but pretty darn far. That's the thing. Upper echelon. Like everyone likes to give someone like Xander a lot of credit for being just to go out just pretty darn great everywhere, but not, not number one everywhere. Rama is, is Xander, but better. Like their games are super similar, but Rama is better. That's, it's frankly just the bottom line. And there's so few people that the golf world has seen like that, even in just the last like two decades, that uh, you have to address it and appreciate it. You really just, you got to be impressed. Sean, I want to talk about John Rahm's post-round comments because I think, A, he won a bunch of fans over, I'm sure, but B, they were just so good they were so spot on um he entered the week coming off of this memorial covid incident where he got told in a really unfortunate way about a really unfortunate thing basically that he had a six shot lead 
at the Memorial, but he tested positive for COVID, so he couldn't play on Sunday. He just had to WD. And there are a lot of guys, even on tour, that would not have dealt with this well that, you know, he easily could have just leaned into it on Twitter or Instagram and and gotten the, you know, collective outrage of golf fans on his side. He could have said, you know, why, why, why wasn't I allowed to do X, Y, and Z to finish out the tournament on Sunday? Um, he didn't do any of that. He didn't make any excuses. He essentially just said it's unfortunate, but there was no other way around it. Um, and I, I just want to read you this uh, this first thing that Rom said when, during the trophy ceremony. He said, this is the power of positive thinking. I was never resentful for one second for what happened, and I don't blame anybody. It's been a difficult year. COVID is unfortunately a reality in this world, and it's affected a lot of people. Uh, I got out of what happened the best possible hand because nobody in my family got sick, and I barely got any symptoms. And he went on to you know, discuss that his, his family has lost some friends to COVID um, and essentially just took it big picture. And uh, having that sort of perspective, which is, you know, always a buzzword we use now that John Rom's a dad, but he definitely showed that he could see the bigger picture here, that him winning that, winning or not winning the Memorial Tournament wasn't going to be a, a deal breaker, especially, you know, in light of the the size of something like COVID. Um, and then for him to come back and do this, I think he's right. I think it sounds corny. It sounds like, you know, something you'd put on a bumper sticker, but the power of positive thinking definitely seemed to get him here. Um, you know, he's famous for his hot temper, but I think he, he deserves some credit for the way he was so level-headed through all this. I don't know if there is another tour pro, an elite tour pro, who I would have who I would have pegged as able to have that mindset, have all that perspective, and then actually get it done. We've seen Rory show up at Augusta with all kinds of perspective. And he's a great quote in the press room and he, he shows how intellectual uh, and cerebral he can be, but then he doesn't win. <laughs> so it's like, okay. What is that worth it to us, the legacy makers? Uh, we've seen Spieth show all kinds of perspective. But then eventually he, he kind of feels like, you know, the golf gods are out to get him at some point. And that kind of pokes holes in all of his uh, mentality stuff. But Rom, Rom did it, and uh, it was incredible. He, he did it from the jump. He did it during his press conference, uh, I think, on, on Tuesday – at Torrey Pines, and I was blown away. The guy could not have been happier. Maybe he deserved to be happy because he he was playing a major, and that's all that really matters. And he was back in his happy spot of San Diego. But it, you know, a a more immature, probably lesser version derivative of John Rahm would have been like the world is out to get him, um, and I would not have held that against him. Um, he said he got phone calls from Padraig Harrington and a message from Nick Faldo shortly after having, you know, basically a, a victory wiped away with a huge lead. And they talked about how they had gone through things similar to that, obviously different because there was no pandemic when it happened to them, but just things that felt a little unfair and uh, how they actually learned a lot from the unfairness and, and triumphed out of it. Um, 
I think people can take lessons from that for everything in their life. It was impressive. It I I wrote a story about how John Rahm had matured, but I, that was still even beyond what I kind of expected. Um, so yeah, truly impressive. Uh, I don't really know what more to say about it. <laughs> I think you can say it was cool and funny seeing Phil Mickelson, uh, part of the celebration after Rom stuck around to celebrate with Phil a month ago at the PGA. I mean, everything Phil does is sort of outrageous and hilarious. They, they showed him on TV. I had just gotten back to the media center when they uh, showed Phil and Kelly just kind of sitting, chilling at the edge of the range. And, you know, I was just wondering what Phil could have possibly been saying in that moment. But it was cool to see him sticking around and supporting Rom. Um, there is that tight crew that, like you said, Rom seems like a very loyal guy. Uh, he's close to some of his friends from college. Um, some of the friends that he and Kelly have had, he's obviously got a guy that prioritizes his family. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's easy to fall into saying, all right, this is the first of many. And I think it probably is for John Rom, but it's also worth appreciating that, man, these things are hard to win. Um, Rory hasn't won one in seven years. Xander Shoffley has never won one. Justin Thomas has somehow only won one of them. Um, there's a bunch of guys that either can't win one and seem like they're destined to, or haven't won one in a while, or haven't won as many as it seems like they should. So for John Rom to win this one, I can only imagine the relief he must be feeling. Um, God, it must be a good feeling. Yeah, I think the Louis Ustazen would be among those uh, top-ranking dudes that you Let's would talk about Louis, yeah. One more than one. I think I'll start with the idea that at the beginning of every single tournament, there is an expected win percentage and it's much lower than people ever give credit for. John Rahm's implied win percentage, expected win percentage was like 8% going into the week. Um, that changes and it fluctuates throughout the tournament and based off your play, you can do so many things and people would say, You've ex- you have earned some fraction of majors. Matt Kuchar should have, have won X amount of majors. That number's probably like 1.24, you know, like he, he deserved, he beat everybody but Spieth, uh, at Burkdale. And so he probably deserved through that. And then, you know, a couple of great finishes at the masters to have won, maybe one and a, and change of a major. So that is all to say that Louis's number through all these second place finishes in master er, in, in majors, he's up to six now, uh, his number is probably, 1.5 maybe or something like that. It's still not that high. That's that's kind of the point I'm making. He won his British Open. Uh, he kind of won it going away, so he definitely deserved to win that that major. But he also lost to a bunch of really, really good people playing at their peak at really tough courses in which his game was great but not, you know, immaculate. And so he lost to Justin Thomas, and he's lost to Phil Mickelson, he's lost to John Rahm, uh, he's lost to... Gosh, I don't even know. Brooks Kepka at some point. So Bubba Watson at the Masters. All that to say is, is he short on majors that he probably should have a total count? He probably should have two. He, doesn't necessarily, he shouldn't necessarily have three. And I don't think he should have anything less than two. But it's a tough look when they all start adding up. T2, T2, T2. Yeah. He's got the, the T2 Grand Slam. 
It's tough. Two in a row. Like go overboard. Let's not go overboard though. Well, I think that the way we can go overboard is is saying that man, I feel for Louis because when he made that birdie putt, ultimately completely meaningless birdie putt on eighteen to get him from solo second to solo second, he (laughs) didn't even smile. He just it almost made it more painful knowing that you know he was just one shot away that if he hadn't made bogey at 17 that he'd be headed to a playoff that if rom hadn't made both those bombs that he would have a really good chance to win i think he played well enough that in some alternate universe he could have played the same round and won the golf tournament um and just to have him play so well at these majors the last couple majors I don't know, man. Those those runner-up finishes, they just must be harder than when you finish third and fourth. But they pay better, too. So there is that. I mean, Louis walking away with an entire tractor load of cash. Um, to some people, that would be pretty good. He was, he's was he got to be someone you would expect to play well next month at Royal St. George's. If he wins, all suddenly he's the player of the year, right? Yeah, but that's the thing. Like, is, is, this, a, is this a... Is this a guy that we should expect to continue on this run? Like, I mean, he's not all—he's not week in and week out an elite golfer. I know he's in the top 20. I know his finish at the PGA jumped him up in the world rankings. But this doesn't necessarily feel like it's something that's going to continue for forever. Xander Shoffley had another top it won't 10 continue. this week. No, it seems no. like he's probably going to win a major at some point. But Louis, like, there's no, no. guarantee he's ever going to get back to – this level again so i think that's what makes no, it tough but he plays in four so weeks close. that's the point he does he plays in four weeks and behind john rom and probably behind rory i would put him right there as someone i would expect to to contend there do you think louis would rather have finished second or fourth this week <laughs> second <laughs> uh you have been calling him hipster artisan Brooks Kepka all week long. Why are you suddenly thinking that he's not going to be able to do it? I think just because of his age and because, you know, it's really tough. Even Brooks Kepka isn't quite Brooks Kepka these days. He looked an awful lot like almost the guy we think of as Brooks Kepka today. Um, he got it to four under at one point. He could not seal the deal. He couldn't get it in the house. Uh, he finished T4, which is great, but it's not like the door slamming Brooks Kepka that we, we grew to expect. So, yeah, I call Louis Hipster Brooks because, you know, he's got that certain way about him. There's no there's no jock swagger to Louis Oosteezen, but there is an ability to rise to the occasion in major championships, and um, it's pretty aspirational. You know what was astonishing is how similar, in terms of just sheer names that you recognize, uh, this leaderboard held compared to the 2020 U.S. Open nine months ago at Winged Foot. Yes. Uh, you had Louis Oosthuizen on the leaderboard, Matthew Wolf on the leaderboard, Xander Shoffley up on the leaderboard, Bryson up on the leaderboard, Rory McIlroy finished top 10 at Winged Foot, Paul Casey was T17, Harris English Finished fourth at Wingfoot. He's third at at Torrey Pines. Harris English finished John fourth Rom, at Wingfoot. Yeah, solo fourth. John Rom flirted with Wingfoot early in, last year. Uh, he eventually kind of faded, 
But really the only difference in this leaderboard to that leaderboard is Brooks Kepka, the fact that he played. So that, I think, shows you what the USGA has prioritized in uh, courses and in setup. And uh, this isn't necessarily a critique right now, <laughs> but uh, is it going to be different next year at Brookline in Massachusetts? I don't know. I think Brookline is Wingfoot-esque in some ways. I've never played the course. I've never played Wingfoot either, though. So you can see the courses that they go to and how they set it up. And the the difference between the fairway and the rough is prioritized. And that has led to a certain type of golf. Yeah, and I think we should probably expect that to continue. Um, it's funny. The, the main difference between this leaderboard and Wingfoot's leaderboard was, you know, the final six to 10 holes today, because that's when some of the names that you mentioned suddenly vanished from the leaderboard midway through the front nine. It suddenly was, I mean, it was an all time great leaderboard. There'd been a lot of grousing about, you know, Torrey Pines being boring or the, the tournament kind of not living up to the hype, but then suddenly it all got really good. And then it all got really crazy. Um, Bryson finished tied for 26th. Are we ready to talk about that? Um, like the implosions I mean, that's that just suddenly happened were, it is an anomaly, but yeah, but there were a few different anomalous feeling things that all kind of happened at once. Um, Rory vanished, Wolf vanished, Bryson extra vanished. Um, I, I don't know. It got crazy. And I don't know if, um, I, I honestly can't figure out the, the combination of factors that made it that way. If it's pressure, if it's course conditions, if there was just, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, why did guys suddenly, in the last five groups, only one guy shot under par on the back nine? That was John Rahm. Only one other guy shot even par. That was Louis. Bryson shot 44. Other dudes, you know, shot in the 40s. Um, Russell Henley lost it. Mackenzie Hughes lost it. He shot 41. I, I don't know. Like, I guess I should be the one answering it. I was out here watching it, and, and it was like just guys couldn't do basic things. They couldn't lay up into the fairway on the 13th hole. Everyone walked off with double bogeys. They were shanking chip shots. Morikawa and Bryson each hit a cold shank with a wedge in their hand. Um, and I, I guess it's just the, you know, the, the combination of being at the end of a really hard week. The course was getting tougher and firmer. Um, the pressure was ramping up. I, I can't completely add it all up, but it was pretty thrilling to watch and it made John Rahm's like survival seem that much better. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, the back nine did play according to par a full stroke harder than the front, whatever that is worth. I don't know. Um, I think those holes 12, 13, 11, 14, even like. They can, they, there's a pretty brutal stretch there, 14 through 17. We had some really kind of difficult golf holes and yeah. uh, it wasn't surprising. I think, I think every single one of those dudes was just hitting driver everywhere because you feel like you got to hit driver everywhere and you can just kind of get yourself, you're getting yourself into a little bit of trouble. Um, and the greens, Poana is certainly tricky enough that it can, it can seep some doubt 
Colin Morikawa hit it inside of five feet a couple times on the front nine and didn't convert birdie putts. Mm-hmm. You just got to think that eventually, after the 60th hole, that starts to seep some doubt into your head of like, oh, crap, am I choking here? Yeah. I don't know. I don't have an explanation for it. It was very right. odd. It was it was very odd. They're all puking all over themselves, except for, you ready for a little. You ready for a little game of good week, bad week, Sean? Yeah. All right. Pretty simple. I'm going to ask you a name. You tell me if they have a good week or a bad, if they had a good week or a bad week. The first one we, we already touched on, Louis Oosteezen. Uh Louis had a great week. He did. I think Louis got closer to winning this major than he got to winning Kiowa. I think you could argue he's closer to winning this major than he was to winning a lot of his second place. He was really recently. damn close to winning this tournament. He really was. Yeah. And I don't think he uh, – there's just so much more for him to take from this than uh, to get beaten down because he made one bad swing on the only hole on the property where you can't make that swing. Now, that's a huge mistake. <laughs> it's a, a gigantic mistake, a tournament-losing mistake. But he, he, he did not puke on himself when everyone else was down the stretch like before then. And uh, – yeah, he was in position. You, you can. I don't know. I'm making a lot of excuses for Louis. You are, but still, good week. I think good week is the correct answer there. He finished solo second. He made like a million and a half dollars. He's he's a major championship almost killer. Good week for Louis. Uh, here's a layup because I want to just give him a shout out. Guido Migliozzi. Good week mm, or bad week? Yeah. Pretty phenomenal week for Guido. Guy's going to be at the Olympics. He's going to be at the Masters now. He's going to be at a lot of places. He's he's not going anywhere. He's he's officially ascended. Guido may have had the second best week of anyone. T4, 68 today. Probably didn't realize when he finished just how high he would climb on the leaderboard, but he ended up at two under in that tie for fourth. He's going to the Masters. Uh, Brooks Kepka, good week or bad week? Bad week. Which is crazy because mm. he finished T4 as well. But yeah. definitely some holes poked in Brooks Kepka's uh, Mr. Major facade again. Uh, sort of. I mean, he led the website when you wrote about him Thursday because he did it again. We half doubted him again and he did it again. But when he had a chance to play really good golf the last four holes, he did not do it. When he had a chance to take the clubhouse lead, make people think some things on 18, he made bogey, flubbed it into the bunker, tried to get super cute with it. Is that circumstantial? For sure. Uh, is he a favorite at, at St. George's? For sure. But it's just like, I think what we're learning now is, yeah, he has a different gear uh, in the majors, but those four wins that he piled up, uh, between Aaron Hills and Bell Reeve and Shinnecock and Beth Page. That was abnormal. That was, you know, the gambler's yeah. fallacy. It was still him maxing It's all happening. Out. Yeah, no doubt. So he's kind of proving how difficult these things can be still by losing. Colin Morikawa, briefly. Good week, bad week. A good week. <laughs> he stunk it's gotta it up. It's got to be a good week. Stunk it up in the first round, rallied back, 
proved that his game can travel uh, to this type of setup as well. Uh, sucks at putting, though. So <laughs> what are you going to do? I think you're going to worry a little bit about that putting. I mean, to your point, he was the only guy in the field that was in red figures each of the last three rounds. So, I mean, just the the way his rounds were ordered, it felt like a victory for him to get into the top five by the end of the week. Obviously, he would like a another try at the 13th hole today. He made double bogey. He was in a pretty good position after his second shot and then ended up just doing a whole bunch of things, including shanking a chip. Anyway, it's good for Morikawa to be around another major championship leaderboard. Um, the putting is suspect, but yes, good week. Xander Shoffley, T7, yeah, one under par, this is a bad good week. week or bad week? This is a bad week for Xander. Um, hopefully people uh, listening don't hear the thunder rattling uh, the Chicago streets right now. If you do, Ooh. apologize. Uh, Xander had a bad week because Xander is tinkering with something that doesn't make a lot of sense. He's trying to become a better putter. He was already a top 10 putter this year. He's doing the arm lock. Mm. He's reading greens differently. And he lost a stroke and a half to the field on putting alone. He was probably one of the best drivers all week long and uh, somehow was like not out of position pretty much anywhere all week long. You, you showed how well he knows this golf course growing up in San Diego and he showed just how kind of off he is with the putter. He, he should have... He should have been on top of the leaderboard after one of these rounds, and he just never was. He never fully got there. So I'm sorry, Xander. Our standards are pretty high, but it was a bad week. They are high, and he had a T7 today where he was never really better than T7. You know, maybe he, at the start of the day, you know, he made a birdie that maybe got him up in that area, but he never seriously threatened the lead he was never in that group of people that got within one um he just was kind of steady and solid all week in a way that he was never close to winning um and i think he's going to be disappointed to your point the arm lock putting has not made sense it seems like he's doing it to make a point and the point only works if he's suddenly a better arm lock putter than he was you know normal putter so so far he's not making a point and he's also not putting well I know he's trying to play the long game on that one but it's got to be frustrating to you know change something up right before Tory Pines his hometown tournament he to did it to himself so desperately to win a major and then to not do it frustrating to did. change the, something up he did it to himself yeah it's got to be yeah. frustrating for it not to work dude was a top 10 putter yes. before he started doing it Rory McIlroy, T7, good week or bad week? Great week. Oh, <laughs> interesting. It was a great week for Rory, and that surprises you because it's coming out of my mouth. The guy uh, finishes T7, but he was in the lead as he made the turn, four under. And uh, the reason it's a great week is because the guy has had some major bugaboos he has really, really struggled kind of finding and losing his swing throughout major championships. It hasn't 
you know, it's, it's resulted in him missing cuts. It's resulted in him backdoor top tenning. Uh, this was not a backdoor top 10. It was the first time it's felt like he was actually in contention. He had a share of the lead on Sunday when it mattered at some point, if he wanted to hit, or if he, if he made great golf shots down the stretch and shot two under par in the back nine, he's going to a playoff with John Rahm. That score was out there. Um, it's, of, of course, disappointing that when it got really, really, really real, it didn't work out for him. Um, but I think there's a lot to for, there's a lot for him. There's a big there's a huge difference between a backdoor top ten and whatever this week was for him. He still lost almost two and a half strokes to the field with his putter. And I think a lot of that took place today. The guy was not good with his putter today, and not good to the point where it was like, oh, he's missing that putt that he. You know, that he just hit, he's missing that by three feet, two feet. Putts that don't even flirt with the hole. That's concerning, but otherwise, great week for Rory. There was a moment where, uh, let's see, Russell Henley had just made bogey at six, and they were coming off the sixth green together onto the seventh tee. Suddenly, there was a four-way tie for first, including Rory, and then he smoked a tee shot down the seventh hit wedge um, really close, and it seemed like, wow, this might be happening. It might be on. Instead, he missed that putt. He never really got, um, never really was in the lead again, and, and, you know, three putted on 11, which seemed pretty unforced, made a horrible double at 12, which was partly bad luck. Um, But, yeah, the wheels fell off, but this you're right, this was a front door top 10, not a back door top 10. Have you ever like been close to someone who had a, a very serious injury in a, in a surgery and had to rehab it? I think Rory yeah. is rehabbing his golf game. And I think Ooh. I think he at some point had surgery and it sometimes when people like tear their ACL or or tear their rotator cuff, they really have a hard time trusting that again. They have a hard time planting on on their knees, uh, making you know directional changes, throwing a fastball or a curveball you know as hard as they once did or whatever. It's hard to trust it. I think that's what Rory has been doing for the last two years. I think the win uh, at Quail Hollow came as a little bit of a surprise to him. And I think this is the next step. Like anyone who goes through rehab, it goes through these steps where all of a sudden you kind of break through your brace and you don't need your brace anymore. I don't know if we're quite there yet, but I think he's close to breaking out of the brace. And at that point, he might just run away with a couple things in a row. You're saying Rory's working on cutting in the lane, that hard cut to the left-hand layup? Yeah. Like he, like he, he just – he needs – he needs to see it happen once or get close to seeing it happen once to know that it's actually possible. And then he's going to be jumping through the roof. So positive about Rory. Matthew Wolf, T15, good week or bad week? I can't imagine a better, well, obviously a better week would have been like truly contending on Sunday. But this is a guy who is in a, in a uh, apparently a pretty dark place a month ago, two months ago, three months ago, you know, he's been there for a little while. And a lot of the story about him this week 
was breaking out of it. You don't just snap your finger and fix everything when it comes to at least the, the mental game, having confidence in yourself. But this is huge. This is him going through a valley and realizing that, oh, yeah, I can get out of that. That wasn't as big of a deal as I maybe thought it was. It's got to be a phenomenal week for him. It seemed really good for him to be back out and to recognize the support that he had on tour. Um, I talked a bunch to Matt Wolf this week. I, I talked to him on Wednesday before he started um, just to kind of get a sense for where he was. And I talked to his coach, George Gankus, too. And George's whole point was basically, man, this course sets up really well for this guy. And, you know, someone had sent him the odds and sent, you know, along that Wolf was a an underdog just to make the cut. And Gankus was like, that's that's crazy. That's unbelievably <laughs> crazy. As long as he doesn't blow a gasket, basically, he will be here for the weekend. And Wolf really was. There were a few moments in actually each round where it seemed like things might turn in the wrong direction. And they never completely did until the middle of Sunday's round. I think he made five bogeys in a six-hole stretch. Um, But it was refreshing to hear him after each round talk in a pretty positive way, even today after he faded a little bit. Um, So this is a situation where I I guess if, if he's happy, then we've got to be happy for him and we should be happy for him. And I think some of the most important moments of the week came from you know, him talking to Bubba Watson on the range or, um, you know, Xander Shoffley coming up to, to give him a hug just to say he was glad to see him or Sam Burns coming from a hole over during the practice round just to greet him. So I think that he probably had a pretty cathartic week, I think, just talking about the things he was able to talk about. That must feel good to some extent. So shout out to Matt Wolf. Good week. T15, but certainly felt better. All right. Well, before we close, I need to make my peace with the golf course. That would be nice. You pretty much have no course takes, or at least you've made that quite clear. Are you saying I have no course takes? I'm saying you don't, I don't feel like you've really publicized your opinion on Torrey Pines mm. in the way some people have, yeah. notably myself and me to a far lesser degree. I think it's because I feel conflicted. People. So, I want you to I want you to lay out your your closing thoughts on Tory Pines. Okay. So one thing that we do when we see these majors or we see courses host uh, events that they haven't hosted many times and we see wow, look at this leaderboard. This leaderboard is showing us that the best players are the cream rises to the top. The Masters, you know, the best players that play that week are going to end up finishing in the top 10 and win. The Masters is such a great test of championship-level golf because the people we perceive to be the best finish near the top of the leaderboard. Um, we, do that, we do that a lot, but I think we do it incorrectly sometimes. Uh, I think it is very true that if the best players in the world – came uh, to Sydney Maravitz par three course, just, you know, up the street from where I live. I think the best players in the world would all be right there again. Like, I think, I think the best players in the world are the best players in the world. 
And sure, when you when you make it a major championship setup and you make it tricky, yeah, you're going to probably suss out Richard Bland through 72 holes. But my biggest issue with Torrey Pines hosting the U.S. Open is that Torrey Pines is an annual tour course. I know we've said it before. We said it last last podcast. That's the main reason why it should not host major championships. Um, it might be the only sufficient reason. I don't know if I need a reason beyond that. Um, like we said, we, we were here five months ago. We'll be here in seven months. And we'll be here 12 months after that. And uh, the, there will be three PGA Tour events hosted at Torrey Pines in the span of 12 months. And so that to me is all you need to, to say that I don't, I want my major host courses to be different. I want to, it to show some, some variance. But I think a secondary reason is that the current form of the golf course is that it, it does not reward or demand the types of golf that I think the sport was meant to demand out of its elite professionals in like championship form. Uh, what I mean when I say that is that this course asks you to hit a bunch of drive, like everyone just hit driver everywhere. doesn't matter where it goes, just driver everywhere, driver everywhere, driver everywhere. That's the modern game, but there are many host courses that can defend against that. If that was the case, Marion would not have had a score uh, of plus one when the U S open in 2013. Um, if, if that was the case, then Royal Melbourne would have been blitzed by all the long hitters. And uh, Augusta National would not stand up year over year. And what Dustin Johnson did at 20 under would not hold the record. Just because um, a course builds up a great leaderboard and just because it gets exciting does not mean that the course is really asking the greatest players in the world to consistently hit a bunch of really good golf shots. Uh, and I think people will probably listen to like what I'm saying and be like, well, what the hell? John Rahm played phenomenal golf down the stretch and a bunch of people couldn't handle Torrey Pines. Well, that's because that type of golf, it just like, it, it's just different, man. It's just different, the type of golf. I don't understand why people were pissed that Wingfoot was dismantled by Bryson in the same fashion last year and then are super okay with everyone just hitting driver and bombing and gouging it this year. So I don't know. Like, it's tricky to try and create a golf course like Pinehurst everywhere and a course like Pebble Beach that's going to have wind all the time or a course like Oakmont that that can that can have green speeds and the climate is different like it's tricky to do that and it's tricky to have it be publicly accessible or be a muni but at the same time the USGA is the biggest golf organization in the world the most important golf organization in the world and they can make decisions similar to the PGA that craft a better test of every single aspect of the game. That's kind of me making my piece. And uh, I don't think Tory, I don't think Tory is, is um, maybe creative or asking for creative golf in the way the best courses ask for creative yeah. golf. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm partly with you. I think I'm less concerned with, um, you know, whether or not it creates an effective test for players. I think it I think it did a fairly good job of identifying the best 
golfer this week. Um, and I think it's hard to really figure out, figure that part out exactly anyway. So I guess I'm more focused on like what I can make better sense of, which is just how interesting a golf course it is to watch, right? Because this is an, it's an entertainment product. I don't know if you can do a, a, you know, if you can model out basically whether this rewarded the most deserving players or not. But isn't it like, no, the PGA tour is an entertainment product because there's 42 tournaments a year in a 52 week span. The U S open happens once a year and it's been doing it for a century now. And I think it's, I don't think the entertainment product excuse works here. I know that there's a lot of money attached to it and people watch it and, and the ratings for it matter, but this event is going on without people on TV watching. It doesn't yeah. like the fact of, of like, I know that's not necessarily the thing you were arguing, no, no. So, but when people say that this is entertaining golf or that is entertaining golf, like I want players to have a tee shot that is difficult and approach shot that is difficult. And if you do that really well, you might have a, a birdie putt that's 10 feet. That might be difficult. Yeah. And I think that, that this course doesn't necessarily make difficult tee shots. It's driver everywhere. You're not asking for different shots from the bag. Like it's long. It's, 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 uh, sufficiently long to test the yeah. modern player well, 7600 yards i mean it plus. is difficult you had though you know runs. like it, it it's obviously difficult based on the scores based on what dudes were doing in the back nine today but it's it's not necessarily interesting and i think that that's where um that's where i come down like that it's it's simpler for me to say yes i wish this golf course was more interesting i think it can be you know, hard and, and reveal the best player. And that's where I, I bring up the idea of it being an entertainment product, because I think that, you know, you could play, I'm, I am curious if the most boring golf course would also reward the overall sort of best golfer. And that's why I think that, you know, a, a course or a leaderboard does not defend you know, the course, I think a lot of viewers don't care about the course. Basically on some level, they want to see like today, a close leaderboard. And I think that, you know, I really enjoyed today. Um, at, I think the site of Torrey Pines is fantastic. I mean, you thought a lot about this rerouting the golf course on this same piece of property could potentially be awesome. It's just that the there's not enough variety. There's a bunch of holes that blend together. I think the the most obvious stretch on the property that exemplifies that is 14 and 15, which run right next to each other. So much so that after you play 14, you have to walk about 250 yards back up the hole you just played and cut over to the 15th tee box. And then you play another kind of slight dog leg left that runs in the same exact direction. And it really just feels like you're playing the same hole. So that's where Torrey Pines bums me out. Torrey Pines bums me out in that I I don't really like seeing PGA Tour courses again for major championships. I like that to be a special experience. Um, I think there are certain things that really help. I think the drone shots and the broadcast help showcase uh, the natural beauty of the place a lot more. But man... Yeah, I would love for someone creative to come in, yeah. rip the whole thing up. Well, 
start over. Yeah, not start over though. I, I guess I was kind of. I probably sounded more. Harsh. No, no, not start over. It's dramatic. Probably sounded more harsh than I really intended to. Like I think Tory Pines can be fixed. I I think in its current iteration, it should not host U.S. Open. Um, and you know, like again, the most sufficient reasoning is that it, it comes to this course. We come to this course every single year. Um, but if we intend to host a U.S. Open again, I do think that the event or that I think the course can be fixed. I think the ridges of the ravine can be brought more into play. I think the fourth green can move even closer to the edge there. That's that's the most incredible hole um, if you just make it a little more difficult. And uh, I think there are obviously 12 and 13 are pretty, in, like I think 13 is a lot better than people give it credit for. I think 14, you can get devilish with it. And I think 15, like we just said, needs to be different. There are ways to fix this property. I laid out the big rerouting thing online. I think I think you can make 18 even more difficult in certain ways. You can you can kind of create a shoot with big trees a la Augusta National. You can remove that. Uh, you can remove the hazard that doesn't make sense on 18. It's out of place. You can make it a short, or you can make it a long par four. All of a sudden, Torrey Pines is playing at a par seventy. All of a sudden, John Rahm's score is two under. All of a sudden, shooting seventy is a phenomenal score. It kind of was pretty good this week. All of a sudden, it'd be phenomenal. So all of that thing, like it's minor adjustments. Uh, I'm not the boss. It's a muni adjustments are going to be even more difficult to put through at a muni. It's pretty good. I think everyone wants it to be great. Everyone wants it to be great. And I think this is where the conversation is kind of um, unsurprisingly lost nuance this week is that, look, this place is fine. It's not disastrous by any means. It's just, I think it's more that it's, it is so obviously a site that should be spectacular and it is not spectacular. Um, but it's really cool that it's held at a muni. It's cool that the people that live here, grind on this driving range that they play this course for a very reasonable greens fee i absolutely love that um and look we better get used to it the u.s open is going to come back here the usga is going to bring it back here it's probably know. not going to be the next few years but it's going to happen why do you think so just from some conversations i've had on the ground here it sounds like there's <laughs> there's a real sense that uh that this will not be the last U.S. Open because I was thinking coming into the week that maybe it would be. Yeah, I don't think it should for a while. And West I Coast majors, they love them. Yeah, it's probably true. Maybe it is an entertainment product after all. You know it is. Um, all right, Sean. I mean, if there's ever a time to plug the return to Chambers Bay, this is probably it. But um, along with that, Congratulations to John Rom. Congratulations to everyone who's made it this far in the podcast. Um, congratulations to Guido. Yeah, congratulations to Royal St. George's because Rom's going to win there and it'll be the summer of Rom and they'll be involved in it, which will be fun. All right. Well, that's probably enough for us. From the van on the Torrey Pines North parking lot for the Torrey Pines South US Open, it's been real. <laughs>